Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing Devil in Spring by Lisa Claypeth. This was published in 2017 and is the third book in the Ravenel series. We are really whipping through this series because we cannot wait to read Devil's Daughter. We're getting through this series before Devil's Daughter comes out. So if you're wondering why they're coming out at such a fast clip, that is why. That is 100% why. Let's just just let's just get into the jacket lane because I think we have a lot to talk about with this book. <clears throat> An eccentric wallflower. Most debutantes dream of finding a husband. Lady Pandora Ravenel has different plans. The ambitious young beauty would much rather stay at home and plot out her new board game business than take part in the London season. But one night at a glittering society ball, she's ensnared in a scandal with a wickedly handsome stranger. A cynical rake. After years of evading marital traps with ease, Gabriel, Lord St. Vincent, has finally been caught by a rebellious girl who couldn't be less suitable. In fact, she wants nothing to do with him. But Gabriel finds the high-spirited Pandora irresistible. He'll do whatever it takes to possess her, even if their marriage of convenience turns out to be the devil's own bargain. A perilous plot. After succumbing to Gabriel's skilled and sensuous persuasion, Pandora agrees to become his bride. But soon she discovers that her entrepreneurial endeavors have accidentally involved her in a dangerous conspiracy, and only her husband can keep her safe. As Gabriel protects her from their unknown adversaries, they realize their devil's bargain may just turn out to be a match made in heaven. <laughs> no. This is not what happens, guys. This is not what and happens in this book. To the point that it is what happens, it's like a spoiler-filled mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, totally, totally. Nothing, nothing about this book would be a surprise if you'd read this jacket. Mm-mm, yep. I mean, nothing about this book. There are very few things about this book that actually make sense, in my opinion. <laughs> so, I cannot blame the jacket that much. But this jacket commits the cardinal sins of being inaccurate, spoiling the book, and being generic AF. Yeah. Okay, just checking. <laughs> so, as usual, we generated a random number and then wrote our own summaries based on that number. And for this episode, the number was 38. I don't know. Do you, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I'll take it away. Pandora and Gabriel are compromised while he's extracting her from a couch. But this 28-year-old raised in a gaming hell to be a peer is suddenly willing to drop everything for a 21-year-old who acts 13. <laughs> it's so true and it makes no sense. Makes no, no sense. sense. No sense. Okay, okay, here's mine. Lord St. Vincent, no, not that one, accidentally compromises quirky wallflower TM Pandora. Gabriel can't marry her. He's too kinky and sophisticated for a feminist board game designer. Except suddenly he needs her, so it's time for persuasion skills. Here's what our summaries capture. What the fuck was this book? It makes 
it, it, it makes no sense. And neither of us talk about the third paragraph of the official jacket, which, again, makes zero sense. I don't know what to do with that. I, so I talked about this in the first two books about how I feel like the editing was completely abandoned on these books. I feel like the publishing house was like, this is Clapus. We can publish anything she writes and people will read it and love it. And I think that at least in these first three books, you can really see that that there's there was no editing and you know that it really suffers for that in my opinion definitely i think marion marrying winterborn has been the strongest of the three so far yeah including this one and even it really could have done with some tightening up and this right. is not a deepest problem by the way no you will hear us both go on this rant about plenty of non-romance authors who finally get name recognition Yes. And it's yes. like suddenly their editors mentally check out because they're like, right. anything they write is gold. And it's like, yeah, everyone, everyone still needs a good editor. No, exactly. We have talked about this a lot. I think the most famous and the one that everyone knows about is J.K. Rowling. Like, if you compare the final Harry Potters with the first Harry Potters, there's, they're just not as tight. They're not as tight. But you can tell from the width of the volume. Well, I mean, that too. That too. I mean, they just get like exponentially larger. <laughs> not every not every word you turn out is gold. Yeah, and and that's okay. Like that's, and that's not the mark of a bad author. Exactly, exactly. So I'm what we're saying here is not that this is a Clapus issue. This not is that neglected yeah. her editors because it very well could be her publishing house that is just rushing yes. through the process. I don't. But these last couple of books have not been edited as tightly at all. Correct. That okay. said, just to foreshadow what's coming, don't worry, this will not suddenly become a Clapus is not as good in her later years podcast. We love plenty of upcoming books. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, we do. Um, I do need to talk about the fact that you said Lord St. Vincent. No, not that one, because I was screaming about that in my head the whole time I was reading this. <laughs> I know. If you are a Clapus fan, then you know who Lord St. Vincent is, and it's not some doofus named Gabriel. That's all I have to I say. With no, no fondness for Sebastian, this book officially sent me into eye roll territory of I don't want to read about your throwbacks. Look, Lane hated Sebastian, Lord St. Vincent. She hated him, but his character was so well drawn so, that she hated him. Yeah. How do you feel about Gabriel? I'm, I'm going to forget that I read this book, like, probably tomorrow. That's the thing. Like, Gabriel is, like, a pale... He is a pale shadow of everything good and bad. Him, like, his father? Yeah. I didn't understand, to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. I didn't understand. Yeah. Um, no, okay. I, I, I agree. So, um, there will be no Gentleman Jacksons this week because there was no explanation of why he was real hot, but... Have you ever read um, Haggard's She? Yes. No, I have. Sorry. Yes, I have. The description of Gabriel reminded me so much of the description of Leo Vinci. Vinci. <laughs> I don't think that was on purpose, but that's okay. where my head was at. There was so many mentions to him being a lion. That's what Yes, absolutely. Well, and the thing is, too. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I have so many things to rant about, about just the naming this book, Devil in Spring. 
So first of all, we all know it's so as soon I remember when they announced the name of this book, I was like, oh, my God, it's going to be Sebastian's son. This is going to be really interesting. And I think there are a lot of interesting things that could have been done with it, especially considering like Gabriel feeling like either he has to live up to his father's rakishness or his father feeling like he needs to be better than everyone else or you know he's acting out or who knows but none of it was involved was um investigated in great detail also the fact that they keep calling him a lion we all know the most famous movie is lion in winter right so just the fact that they call him a lion the whole time is making me think of sebastian instead of gabriel so she's a wallflower she's a wallflower shocking shocking that this book where they finally bring back the wallflowers as actual B characters, she's a wallflower. And the thing that I think annoyed me the most about this is that Sebastian is the one who keeps talking about her being a wallflower. I actually thought Evie's presence in this book was well done and relatively subtle. Sebastian's presence wasn't like 0% subtle, which does fit his character, but again, majorly detracted from Gabriel being his own man. She was compromised at a ball by doing something completely unscandalous. So sort of. Like, she goes out. I hated this sequence. So a friend of hers is like, hey, lost an earring when I was meeting an ex-lover out back in this sun house or whatever can you go get my earring Mm -hmm. this is a 21 year old woman she's like i don't want to but i guess i have to this character bt dubs never shows up again Mm -mm. i know she doesn't and i would i don't think pandora's character is someone who would just do this for anyone i wish pandora had been like i really can't do it i'm sorry yeah so find another friend to do it i don't understand why pandora's character even agrees she goes, she's really concerned about getting the hem of her skirts dirty. So she decides to go in from above and dig through the settee to grab this earring. Somehow gets stuck in the fucking furniture. It was really it's hard like, for me to imagine how. Like, could you imagine it? I, oh. Okay, I couldn't get it either. But I couldn't get it. I also, like, to me, reaching my full arm, I imagine she was in sleeves, into this thing was less dangerous to my dress than like hiking up my skirts and reaching well that's what i was thinking too like pick up your skirts yeah i like tell me you've never been in an awkward situation where you're like lifting skirts up i absolutely have or alternate option grab the piece of furniture and pull it out a little bit right like there's no need so anyway she gets stuck in this damn couch he stumbles along to help her out And then through the window, they get spied by two people who decide that means ruination. Well, one of them is is, um, Lord Westcliff. Who isn't committed to ruination. But my point is just like this whole sequence was so out of character and stupid. The whole thing, yeah. Yep. Like if you're going to be compromised at a ball, at least like get stuck in a hedge together. I don't know. (laughs) At least, you know, have, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I didn't hate the whole stuck in a couch thing because I do think it's kind of funny. 
but I didn't love the way it played out. I needed it to at least be justified. Yeah. I, I needed more explanation. I yeah. don't know. I mean, the whole first the whole first part of this book moves so fast with n- almost no explanation. That's what's tough about it. Yeah. Okay. But flip side, right? It moves crazy fast. But other than them meeting while she's stuck in this couch, and then the conversation he has with her family, they don't interact for the first thirty percent of the book. Yeah. I so know. It's really weird the way it's set up. Anyway. It's- the, the construction of this book is very strange. I agree. She gets stuck in a couch. So from that, you can probably gather that she is a manic pixie dream girl. She's and, a manic pixie dream girl come to life, yeah. And she is classy as a character trait. Yes. In this case, I agree with you. And she, there's like this whole explanation for why she's klutzy. Yeah, they, they try to give it depth. And it's like, okay, but the end result is she's klutzy and that's a thing. So he... <laughs> There's this huge MacGuffin in this book about how he is just too sophisticated and kinky and he just cannot marry a virgin because you would never satisfy him in bed. I hated this for like 96 reasons. One, he's been having sex exclusively for the same woman with the same woman for the last two years who he doesn't even have feelings for. He doesn't like her. Like this is a St. Vincent problem because I'm sorry, St. Vincent, the original problem. Because he was like, I'm constantly fucking a different person every day. I've never experienced any sort of closeness with anyone. Not that it, like, validated it in that sense. But a guy who, like, has never slept with the same woman three times, you totally get being like, what is marriage? It is scary. This guy has, like, consistently had mistresses and committed relationships, just not with someone he was in love with or a peer. So his whole... Sometimes I like a woman who tells me what she wants in bed. Therefore, I can't get married. And I hate myself for sleeping with my mistress also and kind of hate her. It was like, what is going on here? It's, it was so confusing. It was like Christian Grey meets Derek Craven. It was so confusing. I just also want to say, we're going to do our best as usual not to spoil stuff, but, like, to be clear, the most shocking things we could say about this book were spoiled in the jacket. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, my least favorite trope, and you can tell I'm going to hate a romance novel, or at the very least criticize the hell out of this if this appears. Adult woman shocked at the actuality of an erection. Yeah. In this case, it's not barn animals or Greek statues. It's little boys. Little, yes, it's little boys. I, I don't know. I mean, off. if it's played off for laughs. She is 21 with very willing to explain older female relatives. And she's supposed to be a wallflower who reads too much. Look, I'm not defending Pandora. I just want to make sure you know that there are books you have liked that have this trope in it. Uh-huh. But I've hated this trope. I've laughed about yeah. it. I mean, if Mistress happens where she's like, you're not like a statue. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I might like that book, but I could have done without that trope. I do not like this trope. All right. They both have big, crazy families. Hers is more of a recent found family. His is apparently St. Vincent's produced the original TM has produced a brood of crazy children or something. Well, I don't know. That's the problem. That is the other issue with this book is this is the book that introduces Sebastian Lord St. Vincent as 
his grace, the Duke of Kingston, but he will never be Kingston to us. That's the problem, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so much I need to say about that. Let's keep going your trips. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, God, yes. She's a woman who she wants to work. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, this, like, capitalist feminism that appears yeah, in a lot yeah. of romance novels. I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but basically she wants to work and because if she gets married, her business belongs to her husband, she doesn't want to get married. She's a businesswoman. Respect. But like Meg said, there's some underlying shit there that the more I see it, the less I'm starting to like it. Yes. I agree. I feel like we're like having the same revelation. You guys, we have not talked about this before. We talked about some things before the podcast. It's usually not capitalism. Usually not. But um, yeah, and in this case, also definitely wasn't capitalism, but now we're talking about it. Mm. Yeah. There's a random violent, violent plot twist at the very end because there is no conflict. And it, this is Stephanie so, Warren's to a T. It was so confusing, Lane. I was like, what the heck is happening right now? Oh my God, out of the blue. There's just a stabbing. And you're like, wait, wait what? what? And it's because, so fun fact, this goes back to the jacket, right? The first 60% of the book, the conflict is him convincing her to marry him, even though she has this reluctance about what it means for her independence. The second 40%, there's like no conflict between them. And it's really bizarre the way he's super overprotective without justification. And so it's almost like to justify his previous weird behavior, they have to add a threat to her life that definitely comes out of nowhere. Definitely comes out of nowhere, yeah. Um, which plays into our final trope, which is that she is a bodyguard. Because but it's her husband not justified. Is yeah. Yes. There's, there's, it's not justified in the text, no. I mean, it's justified after the fact. It's like, you're going to be designing a board game. And going to negotiate contracts. You're going to the bad part of town. You better have a bodyguard. <laughs> I have, okay, I'm just going to launch into this. It's out of order, but I don't care. Two of my biggest problems with this book. He has, and she, have legitimate concerns about her future role as Duchess. She has no interest in it or faculty at the things that would be required. Never dealt with. And she's very concerned about what it means for her business if she marries him. And he's like, okay, we'll hire someone to, like, be there with you to basically execute the contracts. But I'll fire him if he doesn't do exactly what you say. And I'm fine with her buying that. But then they never hire <laughs> that No, they don't. She negotiates all the contracts herself unless it's supposed to be Drago. But it's like, that's not in the text. I did no. not understand. Like they made such a big deal out of these two things as like the primary conflicts in their relationship. And then neither are thought or seen through. Okay. So should you want to talk about Pandora basically? Should we talk about okay, her? Fine. So okay. as you guys know, Meg and I both hated Pandora and Cassandra in the first two books in the series. Yeah, basically. So in this book, I just took Pandora as a brand new character the only thing she had in common with the Pandora from the previous books is that she likes board games. So for me, I was like, okay, she's a different person. 
I didn't like cold-hearted rake anyway, and I can just ignore Pandora in marrying Winterborn. So sure, she's an amazing businesswoman who's very creative with board games. I was fine with her, basically. Her reasons for not getting married were totally reasonable. A little bit capitalist, but also feminist. So I was I was okay with it. She's a completely different character. I was fine with her. I still thought she was unbelievably immature. Like, even if I looked at this character out of context of the previous two books, I think the way she approached the world was so naive and that was so celebrated by him. I thought he infantilized her in so many scenes. Even in the way that he physically comforted her and, like, there thereed her and forehead kissed her, which I can find super romantic. I am not someone who inherently views forehead kisses as paternal. I don't think she was equipped to make adult decisions about her business, about marriage. I honestly think she was being portrayed as developmentally delayed. And this is like without the context of the previous books, I did not understand. I hated his fetishization of her immaturity, but I hated her immaturity above all else on its own. Yeah. And I always think it's weird when the first couple of books, like there's this, and this I can't separate from the previous books. The twins were presented as being like, super close, almost one unit. And she never talks to Cassandra in this book outside of one passing scene at a mall. She talks to her a little bit, but yeah, not very much. Definitely not like, not like makes conversation with Mm -hmm. like talks to open ups with engages. Like you hear that she and Cassandra are super close and Cassandra's the person who knows this thing. No one else knows about her. But you don't actually see any evidence of their, like, twinning? Yes. Her conversations with Cassandra do not pass the Bechdel test. I'll just say that. <laughs> her conversations with St. Vincent's older sister, Phoebe, the of tragedy, who I'm sure is the heroine of a future book, it, like, are more substantial than her conversations with, like, her own twin, who in all the previous books, they were presented as a unit. Yeah. So for her to never show up, I was like, I hate this character. And to a degree, the one thing that in previous books could have redeemed her was her undying loyalty to this one person. Well, that and person that's, yeah, that's the biggest reason for her to want to marry Gabriel, right? Is that she knows if she doesn't marry him, it will ruin Cassandra's chances at getting married. And Cassandra is the one of the two of them who has always wanted to just have a conventional life. I mean, look, this is all brand new in this book because in the first two books, Cassandra did not want to have a conventional life. Again, I'm just, that's water under the bridge at this point. I'm like, okay, whatever. They've grown up and, you know, super fast. And she hasn't grown up. She's so infantile. She's very, as you put it, very manic pixie dream girl. Yes. I agree with that. I, so I. I thought it was gross that he was into her. Let's put it that way. I understood both. (laughs) Sorry. I understood both Pandora's reasons for considering marrying him, which were, I mean, the reason was basically to save her family from scandal. And second, her and also her reason for being reluctant to marry him, which is I lose all my independence. Like I can't even sign a contract if I get married to him. So I understood both her reasons for and against marriage. I understood none of Gabriel's reasons for marriage. 
Not a single one. I have no idea, still have no idea what changed his mind about Pandora. No clue. And to be clear, he is presented with an alternative. Her family is not forcing her to marry. They are absolutely happy to weather the scandal. But even if they were to decide she has to marry, it is pointed out to him that she doesn't have to marry him. She just has to marry someone. Mm-hmm. Not only that, this isn't in the book, but they could have been, they could have said, let's have a long engagement, gotten yeah. engaged, hoped that Pandora found someone to marry, excuse me, that Cassandra found someone to marry, and then she could have broken it off. Like, there were a lot of solutions for their issues. I, even now, after having finished this book, have no clue why Gabriel decided that he wanted to marry her. Basically, he thought she was hot. He decides he doesn't want to go with any of these alternatives because he wants her for himself. Right. Which, on its face, is fine, except I don't know why he wanted her for himself. No idea. They, this, And he decides this after, like, a five-minute conversation in front of her family. He decides this because she gets knocked down by a dog and handles it as if it were funny and not the end of the world. Yeah. Tell me wrong. I can't tell you wrong because I still have no idea why Gabriel wants to marry her. Okay. Tell me about Kingston Lane. Who? <laughs> I mean, that's the question. Why? Why do we suddenly have to accept St. Vincent, the real St. Vincent, Sebastian? And again, I love St. Vincent. Lane hates St. Vincent, but we both recognize him as a character, right? Like uh, an iconic character, I would say, honestly. Whether you love him or hate him, you know, he's a polarizing character. And to, I get it, he gets a promotion, he inherits a new title, he's now Kingston, and it's, it's just, it's just very confusing, it's just very confusing to have to accept him under a new name, and I understand that this is how it works, I guess, but it's still confusing. Did you like the scenes of him and Evie? Because this book, the prologue, is of him and Evie hooking up in a bathroom where their grandson has just finished being bathed. I, you know what? I didn't hate, no, I did not hate the scenes with him and Evie. I thought there was a little too, so this him, the scene of him and Evie I was actually totally fine with. I think it was kind of fun that they started the book that way. Um, it kind of ruins the rest of the book for me. But I like the prologue. I will say I think St. Vincent plays too large of a role in the rest of the book. And Evie doesn't have enough. Because I do love Evie as a character. I I think that her interactions with Pandora were actually really sweet. And I liked them a lot. I think there was just too much of St. of I was gonna call St. Vincent, of Sebastian again for me to appreciate Evie's scenes. So I don't think there was not enough of Evie. I think there was too much of Sebastian. So you know the really famous Tolstoy quote that all happy families are alike? It's all unhappy happy families, families are unhappy in their own are way. Alike. All unhappy family. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Got it. That is what I said at the very end. <laughs> you got it. 
I nailed it. Anyway, I think Clefis writes all of her married off former main couples as alike. Evie and St. Vincent in their book were nothing like Kathleen and Devin. And I hated both of those books, but I can acknowledge they were very different couples. Explain to me how Evie and St. Vincent were different than Devin and Kathleen in this book. I, I can't. Them together? No. Like, once you've been reduced to happily ever after, and I don't, I don't believe that sentiment. I don't believe happy, happily ever after is a reduction, but I think it's always presented as such. Like, they're not interesting anymore. They all become the same supportive, worldly, inside jokes about how you don't know how we actually got together. Still yeah. super sexy and without flaw in our whatever year of marriage. I really could have done without, if it had just been the prologue, I would have been like, cool, as someone who does not like Sebastian and Evie's book, like you gave the fans something and then you're launching into your own thing. I will say, Evie, I was a little annoyed. I was, this is the stupidest thing to be annoyed about. I was so annoyed that Evie stuttered with um, Sebastian. Because the whole point was when she wasn't ridden with anxiety, it didn't happen often. And it happened all the fucking time in this book. Yep. I'm like, you know, if you're meeting this, your son's fiance who he doesn't want to be married to, sure, stutter. But when you're alone, like having sexy times with your husband, not supposed to stutter. Yeah, if she stuttered a bunch on the balcony telling Pandora the story about the foxes, like, this is important. I don't know you that well. And you don't have to, have to explain it. Like, anybody who's read the previous books understands the context of Evie's stutter. It was intermittent no matter what the context was in the entire book. And I was like, I don't even like them as a couple, and I'm still catching this. Yes. What are the Evie and St. Vincent stands doing? Also, if they had just decided to have a marriage of convenience and then they fell in love with each other after they were married, it would have made so much more sense than what the heck. I, I still don't understand how they ended up getting married. I don't understand how he ended up into her. There's there's zero explanation. There's no explanation at all as to why he suddenly is like, I want her. So unlike the original St. Vincent, who, love him or hate him, was actually flawed. Gabriel's only flaw is that he's into sex with a lady who isn't a prude i was i was like i actually did not know where lane was going with that and then i was like oh my god she's gonna talk about the supposed kinkiness <laughs> it was so confusing I, I thought it was gonna be more of a like actual kinkiness like i like to dominate i like to tie women up i like or i like to get tied up of course that would never happen because Clefus's heroes are all alphas, but it was so stupid. And also, not only that, there's like this dropped plot thread because Pandora says, like, what's your greatest flaw? Like she tells him her secret, which is that she has no, no inner ear balance, basically, right? Her, anyway, (laughs) that's her greatest, her (laughs) secret. And she's like, tell me about yours. And he's like, I'll have to tell you later. And he never actually tells her, like, I'm 
I'm perverted in the bedroom. Okay, what he tells her is that he beats himself up for keeping a married woman as his mistress. There's that. But also, he's he's too much of a perfectionist. Also that. But so here's my problem. I could actually buy the, the thing he really felt more self-loathing about was f- having sex with a married lady. You never hear that in his internal monologue. No. His internal monologue is all about what he wants in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Not once does he think, I am carrying on with the American ambassador's wife. It's known throughout society. It's a scandal, and I can't stop, won't stop. It doesn't explore why he can't stop, won't stop. But, uh, his character was such a poorly developed shell. I might think she was a 13-year-old in an adult woman's body and someone should have prevented her from making decisions writ large. He was a nothing burger. Mm-hmm. Of a character. Yeah. yeah. He, I mean, he, he was real hot. But other than that, I could not follow what his character development was supposed to be. He He made no sense. And then... As the book jacket says... Oh, I just want to point out, though, he's not kinky. That's the twist. He, uh, he, does, he does tie her pants up once. For, like, 30 fucking seconds. Also, he doesn't ask her about it, explain anything, just assumes that she's into it because she well, doesn't say that. Well, content warnings, Meg. <laughs> like, that was bad. My point is, he is not that... Doggy style with a corset on and he sticks her hands in her corset laces is not that kinky. I know. I know. I mean, I don't want to be like, I'm disappointed that there wasn't more kink because I'm not like super kinky, but ashamed of if, if you're going to hype this up in the second or third chapter, you can't, this can't be the payoff. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have okay this I guess this maybe goes under content warnings I I have issues but this is like in general about historical romance and like kink in historical romance I have no problems with having kinky historical romances the issue that I have with the way they're written is that they don't disclose their kink before they get married and then they don't they don't talk about it afterwards and I'm like just just Talk like he had the perfect. I'm tired of kink as a personality trait. Yeah, and not as a sexual preference in historical romances. Like my favorite kind of sex involves X is not the same thing as a personality trait or like being gay. It is not. It is not like a non-negotiable. Must be all the time. And like I might not love the Abigail Barnett super kinky ones. Oh my god, I forget. The one where the guy gets cancer. Uh-huh, the boss. Thank you. I might not love that series, but, like, at least it's presented as, like, yeah, I might like BDSM, but it's not a prerequisite for having sex with or being with me. Yeah. In historical romance, if a kink is involved, it's always defining, and that's so productive and boring. I mean, it is, but I also feel like if it def- if it does define you, then maybe you should look for your mate in people who also like the same thing and not have them discover it after they get married to you. Okay. The ending of this book. Oh my God. 
I can't. I, I actually don't know. So if you so this is a book about a um, peer who is a consummate perfectionist being accidentally compromised by an eccentric manic pixie dream girl who is also titled. So it's not like it's actually a societal scandal. But the denouement and the conflict in this book involves um, Irish home rule espionage, bombings, and an uh, assassination attempt on the Prince of Wales. Any questions? Um, you forgot open heart surgery, but yeah, that's what happened. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Look, I love Ethan and Garrett. I don't know why they were in this book. Uh, to set up the next one. I mean, yes, but also, what the heck? Yeah, no, this was bad. It was bad. It was so weird. It was really weird. Like, I, 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 I talked about this earlier, but it would have been a much more interesting book if they had been compromised, said, fine, we're going to get married. Gabriel's like, I'll keep that American ambassador's wife as my mistress. This will be a total marriage of convenience. And then somehow they fell in love. I even would have been fine if the whole book was him convincing her to marry him. Yeah. I will point out that she got a star sapphire as her wedding ring. Uh, yeah, Lisa Claypuss drove. And so did Lottie. <laughs> Didn't worth any price. Content right. warning, Meg, this is where you can talk about how half-baked this kink was. I mean, I honestly, I feel like I may have gone into it already. But yeah, he's he's kinky, but like not really. I don't know. I, my major issues with the whole historical kink, I, I, I have already outlined it. Those are my issues with it. So um, Pandora was definitely abused in her childhood. And I find it weird because I thought the parents in the previous two books were presented as neglectful. But not abusive, yeah. But not abusive and, like, unquestionably abusive. Not just in the actions the father took, but in the failure to get her necessary medical care. Mm-hmm. I did, so this actually has to do kind of with this child abuse. So a lot of times we see both characters having these tortured childhoods childhoods in this case gabriel had of course the idyllic childhood because evie and sebastian are his parents so of course he had the best you know i don't know growing up experience ever as contrasted to pandora's i think it actually would have been really interesting if he was like full-blown kinky but had like totally normal upbringing which is what we don't see in a lot of books about kink Right. A lot of people are kinky, yeah, his, like in response. Tell me if to, I'm wrong. He might have tied his mistress up once, but it seemed like his kink was just like enthusiastic sexual participation. Yes, I know. That's what I'm saying. I feel like there's some kind of missed connection with the kink. The non-existent kink. He just wasn't kinky. That's the problem. I didn't That's want funny. him to be. I didn't need him to be. But him like having all of this internal angst over... I don't know. I like a woman who knows she likes orgasms. It's like, dude, I cannot imagine the Victorian age was actually that prudish. Right? Like, yeah. She has a bodyguard. His name is Drago. She does this really nice thing where, so someone has called him Drago and someone's called him Drago. And she says, well, how do you actually pronounce your name? 
And he says, my name is pronounced Drago. And she goes, oh, then I'll just call you Dragon. And I'm like, that's not how it works, Pandora. Well, and then at the end, he tells people his name is Dragon. Well, Gabriel's like, oh, she's calling you Dragon. And he's like, that's how my lady likes it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. You can't just change someone's name. If that person is, if that person introduces themselves as, you know, my name is whatever, Mary Sue, you call them Mary Sue. You don't call them, you know what, I'm just going to call you Mayor. Anyway, I have very strong feelings about this. She changes his name on him and it's treated like a quirky character trait and like she's getting under his skin in a way no one ever has and actually getting to know him as a man. She literally says, I can call you Dragon or you can shave off your beard. So either you change your appearance or you change your name. It's very stupid and I hated it and it made her seem pushy in a way she'd never been in any other scene. Terrible. Like, this is the thing. Not only is it rude... Not only is it offensive, not only should you respect what people tell you to call them in any capacity, it was inconsistent with her character. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Was this book sexy? There's a scene where she touches, they're having sex, and she gets him shirtless. And she puts her tongue on, quote, a male nipple. I'm like, okay, so first of all. It's his nipple. Second of all, male is redundant here. We know it belongs to him. What the fuck? <laughs> I I may have been reading too many Claypuses like in a row because all of a sudden I start like really recognizing some Claypus sex scene stuff. I'm like, oh, there's some glassy heat, which it's kind of a nice phrase. But if you read it too many times, you start thinking, it doesn't make sense, you know? <laughs> I'm okay. Here's what I'll say about the sexiness in this book writ large. Goodness knows I love a male hero who is like insatiably attracted to his beloved. And it's one of the best things about romance novels, this idea that a woman as she is, is this object of constant desire, even when she doesn't think she is not in the, you don't know your beautiful way, but in the like, be holy yourself at all times and the right guy will be into that constantly. No. That is the fantasy. Absolutely. Just this like whatever whatever you wear, whatever you're doing, like whatever, it's not the fact that you don't know you're beautiful. Exactly, Lane. It's the fact that you are just sitting at home reading a book and your husband's going to be like, I want you right now. Yeah. So like totally pops, this book embodies that. Here's my problem. She, this book, for all that he didn't fetishize her virginity, which is, as we all know, my biggest problem. He is so into her naivety. Yeah. In a way I find like really fucking disturbing. It might not be her virginity, but like it's her wide eyed way of looking at the world. It's the way that she like actually is horrifically naive and does not conceptualize things rationally. Yeah. That it turned me off in every sex scene that otherwise I would have been like, this is really hot for a clapis. His desire for her that's completely insatiable would otherwise really work for me because so much of it was presented as him comforting, teaching, educating, humoring her. I found it all pretty repellent. Yeah. 
I mean, honestly, the scene where she leaves her corset on and he ties her pants in the corset strings was probably the hottest. And he doesn't ask her for permission. And he doesn't ask her for permission. That, that's the thing. Is like if we talked about this in Mind Till Midnight about like when he goes down on her, he's like, look, I think you're going to like this. Let me try this thing out. You can tell me. Like, just tell me if you don't. He doesn't say a word to her. He says, leave on your corset. That's all he says. Then he ties her hands up in it. And he's like, well, she's not saying no. So she must be really into it. Think about that first time he went down on her. He didn't say, this is what I'm going to do to you. He says, I want to do something to you. She says, what? And he says, trust me. Yeah, right. It's less problematic in that he's not assuming her consent in the way he does when he trusses her up. But it's still not like he's looking for her active consent. No. And it's framed as like he's too ashamed to articulate her desires and is really excited when she's clearly into it too, even though he didn't have to say anything. But like, this is a woman who didn't know what a penis looked like eight days ago. Right. And this is a 21-year-old woman who acts like she is 13. Like- Four-year-old. <laughs> Gabriel. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I don't recommend this book. Yeah, this is, I can't say it's my least favorite of the series because um, Cold Hearted Rake is also in the series. <laughs> and that book was a hot mess. They're um, different. They have different problems. They have different issues. Uh, like, I, 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 it's been however many years, five years, and I still can't get over the fact that this is called Devil in Spring. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. We'd love it if you would check us out around the internet on Instagram at Plotris or Goodreads slash Plotris. 